0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles, using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
0: Politics should not be what defines your identity government has a great and stately jurisdiction, but it's not everything, and if you're looking for excitement, if you're looking for spiritual fulfillment, if you're looking for the meaning in life, don't look to politics, because we've seen what happens when mass movements become intoxicated by political movements, fighting faiths, fascism, communism, all the rest, try to envelop the lives of their adherents. It's unhealthy
1: that's the venerable conservative commentator George Will. He's written nearly 6,000 columns for the Washington Post. I actually grew up reading George Will, and while I often disagreed with his opinions, I can thank him for expanding my vocabulary. His most recent book is The Conservative Sensibility, and does not mention the current president at all. We talked about the effect of Fox News, the fecundity of freedom, how Barry Goldwater started the modern conservative movement, and why George Will left the Republican Party. But first let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, CAFE recently launched something to help you keep on top of today's news cycle. It's a newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters, the CAFE Brief. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com brief. That's cafe.com brief.
0: Hi, Preet. It's Louise in San Diego, and I'm wondering what kind of authority and control the attorney
1: general has over federal prosecutors. Like you were in New York,
0: the Southern District of New York, could he quash an investigation that you were carrying on? Thanks. I worry.
1: Thanks, Louise. It's a question that I get asked from time to time. It's a question that swirls around discussions about what's going on in the Justice Department. And my answer is a little bit complicated. Yeah, in the line of succession, the Attorney General of the United States of America is at the top. uh, And he has or she has authority over everything that's going on in the department. And so when I was the United States Attorney, you know, we had an independent streak. But if I were ever directed to do something by the Attorney General, I complied. There was a lot of discussion. There was sometimes debate. I had arguments with both Attorneys General with whom I served when I was in office, which disputes I'm not going to describe in this program. And... You know, you come to an understanding about how you should proceed, and there's vigorous debate, and sometimes we were overruled, most often we were not. But largely, most of the cases that we dealt with, even very significant ones that included charges against Sheldon Silver, the Assembly Speaker, and the Senate Majority Leader, Dean Skelos, and the charges against SAC Capital, and Raj Roger Rutnam, and a whole host of others, there was literally no involvement from Maine Justice or the Attorney General whatsoever, because there was no regulation or guideline or statute that required any approval from the Justice Department. Now, on other matters, like the potential criminal trial of Khalid Sheikh Muhammad and the resolutions with Toyota and GM and, and some other matters that an Attorney General would want to keep apprised of, we had a mechanism for briefing the Attorney General. But largely I think the best attorneys general know that a district is handling something well and tend to stay out of it, especially when it comes to the Southern District. There was never a time during my seven and a half years, where an attorney general said, do not continue an investigation of someone or something. Never happened in my experience. I can tell you that if there had been such an occasion where we thought we had a good, bona fide investigation in a controversial matter, and an attorney general, for not good faith reasons, told us to stop investigating, there would have been something of a crisis. I don't think I would have defied the attorney general. In fact, I would not have. But we would have reached a moment where I either had to convince the attorney general that our way was correct or resign from the office and, depending on the nature of it, make myself available for congressional testimony if I thought something corrupt or untoward or improper was happening. Based on some things that have been happening recently, Louise, I understand the basis for your worry and I understand the spirit of your question to be, will Bill Barr put the kibosh on some good-faith proper investigation being done by the Southern District or some other office? Anything is possible, and things that I didn't think were possible have become possible in recent months. But I think that if you're Attorney General Bill Barr or you're someone advising Attorney General Bill Barr and you're going to do something like that, you need to proceed with extreme caution. Because you're not the only one asking this question. And there'll be a lot of other folks with subpoena power and gavels asking the same question if some investigation looks like it was cut off improperly. Hope that answers your question. This question comes from Twitter user Thistle Farm Cows. I'm not sure what kind of a cow that is, but sounds cool. This tweeter asks, I read that Acosta felt incapable of going up against Epstein's eight powerful attorneys, so cut the plea deal. Doesn't a prosecutor have resources, hotshot federal prosecutors perhaps, to call on when confronted with a wealthy, lawyered-up criminal? Hashtag ask Sarah, thanks for your question. And Milgram and I discussed this at some length in the Insider podcast, which you can listen to. But let me just say briefly, yeah, you know, I don't know that I believe that reporting necessarily it would seem odd to me. And as Anne and I discussed, if you were the presidentially appointed, Senate-confirmed United States attorney for a district, especially a district as large as the Southern District of Florida, which, by the way, is about the same size, has about the same number of staff and lawyers as the Southern District of New York, and includes Miami, a large metropolitan area, you're not afraid of any lawyer. Uh, You might have qualms about the closeness of a particular case that you have brought, but... No, you do have the resources of the government. You do have the backing of the entire Department of Justice. You do have access to huge law enforcement agencies like the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service, and others. And you also, you're also not in it for the money. There's no cost problem for you. You go forward when you think the case is proper to bring, and if you think the case is righteous and the facts are on your side and the law is on your side, then you go forward and you proceed in court. The fact that there may be a hotshot lawyer, I don't even know what that means, uh, I, I think frankly... I will not name them here. There are a lot of folks who are in the hotshot lawyer category who, frankly, are not particularly good. Okay, I'll name one. So I don't, I don't understand why that phenomenon would take place here, which is why I tend to doubt it, even though lots of other stuff that's negative about Alex Acosta's handling of this, I do believe and I do credit. If it is the case that a sitting U.S. attorney was afraid or cowed or put off by, quote-unquote, powerful defense attorneys then that person shouldn't have the job. To hear the fuller conversation about this issue and everything else related to Acosta and Epstein, you can listen to the Cafe Insider podcast. Go to cafe.com insider. This question comes from Twitter user BeboGirl33. Hi, Preet. You mentioned in the last podcast a former colleague at SDNY was now a judge, assuming a federal judge. I've always wanted to know, how does that work? You express interest. You are recruited. Can we look forward to Judge Barrara in the future? Hashtag AskPreet. So that's a great question, and it's complicated, and it depends on what state you're from. It depends on whether you're interested in the district court, which is the lowest court in the federal system, the trial court, or the appeals court. It depends on who the senators are. It depends on who the president is. A lot of different things. The general tradition around the country is that the home state senators are the ones who make recommendations both for U.S. attorneys and for federal district court judges to a particular White House. That's not anywhere in the Constitution. That's not anywhere in any guidelines or statute. But that has been the tradition. Senators make the recommendations. Some senators will recommend one human being for a particular open spot. Some senators will recommend a number of people for a particular spot and give the White House its choice. Some senators have screening committees, like Senator Schumer does, made up of serious lawyers of diverse background who do vetting and screening and interviewing and recommendations to the senator. In some states, there are bipartisan commissions who make these recommendations. So it's all different ways where someone gets to the attention of the White House. Remember, you cannot become a federal district court judge unless you are nominated by the president. So the recommendation can come from any source. It can come from a senator or somewhere else. But the nomination has to be made by the White House. And then you cannot be confirmed unless thereafter, you are voted upon favorably by the U.S. Senate. That's advice and consent. Now, what complicates this in some ways is, let's say the White House decides to nominate somebody over the objection of the home state senators. Right now, a tradition remains. It's not true still for the circuit courts, but there's a tradition of the blue slip. The blue slip is a form, and it's actually the color blue, because I filled it out for Senator Schumer on a number of occasions, that you return if you're the home state senator with respect to a nomination in a federal district court in your state, and it indicates your assent to the moving forward of that nominee. If both home state senators do not return a blue slip with respect to a nominee, the tradition has been that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee will not consider moving forward on that nominee. Now, you may have read some controversy about the blue slip falling into oblivion. That is true with respect to circuit court nominees. So this White House has made nominations of people for the higher court, the appellate court, in various states, and the home state senators have not approved those nominations, and the White House has pursued them anyway. And Mitch McConnell has taken up those nominations and hearings anyway. And of course, there's all sorts of ways to get to the attention of screening committees and senators. There are bar associations. Quite frankly, depending on the state you're in, if you are a lawyer who you think should be considered for a federal judgeship, you should reach out to the staffs of both home state senators, state your interest, and in all likelihood, there will be a process that will be outlined that requires submission of an application, a resume, a CV, references, uh, all sorts of other questions you have to answer that in New York, at least, basically track what the Senate questionnaire is once you get confirmed. So if you're asking for a friend, tell your friend to seek out advice and counsel from the home state senators. As for whether or not you can look forward to Judge Barrara in the future, the answer to that is no. I've said multiple times on the show and also at some length in my book, uh, I have great respect for judges. We ask them to do really, really difficult work. We ask them to be perfect and they're just human beings. But I like being a prosecutor. I like public service. And one reason I don't have an interest in being a district court judge is I don't have an interest in doing the hardest thing that they do, which is to determine for how many days, weeks, months, or years you separate another human being from their liberty. And I've said this before. I know it sounds odd coming from a prosecutor who for years made recommendations about that all the time. And we convicted people knowing that they would be sent to prison. Making those determinations, those specific determinations about prison, not my cup of tea. This question comes from Twitter user Chelsea Diandra. Hey, at Preet Bharara, any advice for us future lawyers currently studying for the bar in major need of some encouragement right now? Hashtag Preet. and you've indicated that you go to William & Mary Law School, terrific, great law school, and you're taking the bar in D.C. So, man, my heart goes out to you. <laughs> I will not sugarcoat this, and you know this better than anyone, and there are probably hundreds if not thousands of folks In your position, who hopefully your fans have stayed tuned, taking the bar exam was the single most miserable test I ever had to undertake in my life. And, you know, I had a lot of schooling. (laughs) I went to a private school in college and law school, and nothing is worse than the bar exam. In part, it's terrible, uh, and this maybe helps you think about it. In all likelihood, you're a great student, and you've done well in school, and you've gotten as far as you've gotten, and gotten into great law school because you've done well, and you're used to getting really good grades on tests. The bar exam is pass-fail, right? Like, we used to joke in law school and after that the smartest person in the world was the one who could figure out how to do just enough studying to pass the bar exam by one question. Obviously, you don't do that. I don't know what the DC bar is like. I didn't take it. I took New York and I took New Jersey. New York bar, at the time I took it, was pretty hard. New Jersey bar, no offense to the Garden State, was was much easier. But they ask a lot of questions on a lot of things that maybe you're not expert in. Um, I can tell you some things not to do. So I took... One of the bar testing courses, and I know there are other popular ones now that didn't exist when I was in law school, but I took one of the classic ones, paid a bunch of money, or at least my law firm paid a bunch of money. And I don't remember how many weeks it is. I think it was like 12 weeks or something like that. And about seven weeks in, I lost all my notes. So don't do that. That's a bad thing to do. And at some point, I began earnestly studying, probably by late June, early July. And I shifted my schedule such that I was sleeping all morning and I would stay up and I would study and take sample bar exams. To late in the night, and by the time we got to the end of July on the eve of the bar exam in New York, I was literally going to bed at 8 a.m. and waking up in the middle of the afternoon, which is not a great way to condition yourself for taking an exam that begins at like 9 a.m. The Monday before the bar exam, which I think in my day was Wednesday and Thursday, I was settling into sleep. So don't do this, by the way. This is an example of what not to do at home. I was settling into sleep in my very comfortable law school futon. And I put on the TV just to see what was on and rest my eyes and go to bed. And literally, it was about 8 in the morning, the opening credits to The Godfather Part 2 graced my screen. And I had a decision to make. Do I go to bed after having been up a lot of hours because the bar exam was about 48 hours away? Or do I watch for the 17th time The Godfather Part 2? Well, I watched The Godfather Part 2 for three hours. Went to bed at 11 a.m did not put me in, <laughs> in good standing in terms of rest for the bar exam. But I made it through, I passed, and uh, now I'm a podcast host. So notwithstanding, uh, my, my trajectory, please, do as I say, not as I do. Look, there's really no good advice other than take good notes, don't lose them. There are certain big areas of law from my time that I remember I was not going to be able to master. I never studied in law school. I was learning it for the first time over the course of some days in the summer of 1993. And there are only going to be a very few number of questions on some of those arcane topics. So you need to balance your study time, study the basic stuff that you know will be on it and that you probably know better. And some of the other more arcane stuff, I would make that a lower priority. If your bar prep professors disagree with me, follow their advice over mine. I remember one person saying, look, I apologize for this arcane talk to the non-law student folks who are listening, but The rule against perpetuities is something that I didn't understand, nobody understands, uh, that is difficult to understand, takes a lot of effort and energy and study to understand. And music to my ears was one teacher saying, look, at most there's going to be one question on it, and if there is, just answer D and study other stuff. Hope this was helpful. Good luck not only to you, Chelsea, but to every suffering law student taking the bar exam anywhere in the country. I feel for you. My guest this week is columnist and author George Will. He won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary back in 1977, just three years after joining the Washington Post. No topic is off limits for Will. He writes about baseball, parenting, foreign policy, presidential candidates, and more twice each week. We discussed what's happening to the relationship between conservatism and the GOP, why he says Paul Ryan is the biggest casualty of Trump's presidency, America's other national pastime, and how a George Will column nearly crashed an online dictionary with the one word he used to describe Vice President Mike Pence. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Feeling safe in your home is a top priority, but sometimes finding the right home security system can slip down on your to do list. Maybe it's because most companies make it difficult. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. SimpliSafe protects every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. And they make it easy on you. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Prices are always fair and honest. In fact, around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. What really makes SimpliSafe stand out? Their video verification technology. With Safe video verification, the security system doesn't cry wolf they're able to visually confirm a break-in allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster. You can visit simplysafe.com/preet to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Be sure to go to simplysafe.com/preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. George Will, thank you for joining us. It's a real honor to have you. Glad to be with you. Uh, you were the author of a new book, The Conservative Sensibility, by George F. Will, uh, which we'll talk about a bunch. But I, want, I wanted to let the listeners in on something. As is standard practice, when you go into a studio, the sound people want to make sure that the levels are okay and the volume is right. Or, ordinarily, people will sort of either count or talk about what they did that day. You instead, uniquely, began to recite what I thought was the Gettysburg Address.
0: Well, even Lincoln can be improved or updated, (laughs) like the living Constitution. We have a living Gettysburg Address.
1: Do 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 you mind sharing with the listeners how you made sure that the sound level was set properly?
0: I said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that the designated hitter rule is a mistake. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sure if Lincoln were alive today, that's what he would have said at Gettysburg.
1: If only we could spend all our time talking about the designated hitter rule in baseball.
0: Well, I, I, only, <laughs> I only write about politics to support my baseball <laughs> habit. I've seen you say that. Uh,
1: you began as a young, smart person as a liberal. Is that correct?
0: Well, in college in 1960, I supported Jack Kennedy and uh, was a sort of standard issue academic child and my father's a college professor and i was a standard issue liberal and then in 1962 i went to uh, oxford for two years and came back and voted for goldwater what happened in between was not only did i see the berlin wall which was a great instant tutorial in the stakes of modern politics but also i uh, got to know uh, british socialism it stuck me that a vibrant society was having its energy suffocated by too much statism At about that time, in 1962, Milton Friedman published Capitalism and Freedom. Frederick Hayek had just published through the University of Chicago Press his great book, The Constitution of Liberty. And I was off and running toward what I've become, which is, uh, as I say, a Goldwater voter in 64 when I cast my first vote for president. And it is to the memory of Barry that this book is dedicated. How'd that vote go in 64? Not so good. Well, no, I think Goldwater won in 64. It just took 16 years to count the
1: votes. (laughs) You have not written a book about politics and and political philosophy in, I think, 10 years. Why write this book now?
0: Well, I've been thinking about this stuff since, uh, well, all the time in Washington, since I wrote my doctoral dissertation at Princeton on the problem. It was called Beyond the Reach of Majorities. You may recognize the phrase from Justice Robert Jackson's opinion in the West Virginia v. Barnett second flag salute case where he said the very purpose of a bill of rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities to rescue them from the vicissitudes of politics. And I grew up in central Illinois where we worried about Lincoln and the kansas nebraska Act and all the rest. Uh, So I've been thinking about a long time whether America is about a process, majority rule, or a condition, liberty. They're not the same thing. And Majority rule can be a problem for liberty. And so I thought it's time to put this down. Also, obviously, to speak about the elephant in the room, conservatism has lost, at least as I understand it, has lost the allegiance of the party which was the vessel of conservatism for actually since Goldwater when it became an ideologically conservative party. So uh, this seemed like the time. How many
1: times do you mention Donald Trump in this book?
0: Zero. I, don't, I also don't mention uh, Charlemagne or Doris Day <laughs> because none of them have anything to do with American conservatism.
1: Although, arguably, Donald Trump has something to do with hijacking a party that, as you said a minute ago, was a vessel for conservatism. Does that matter?
0: Well, it matters that the party was so susceptible to hijacking. when These people, in the, particularly in the congressional party, were so lightly attached to their rhetorical convictions, whether they were real or not, remains uh, much in doubt. For years, to take just one example, the one thing that all Republicans were agreed upon was the virtues of free trade. That is so universally recognized, at least among academic economists, that it's one of the reasons why economics is one of the few academic fields that has moved to the right in the last 50 years. Uh, Donald Trump comes to town and says, by the way, you're no longer for free trade, and they tugged their forelocks, and essentially said, you're right, we're not. And uh, he said about exercising discretion that uh, Congress has given to presidents willy-nilly over the years as part of the Congress shedding its responsibilities in ways that were the court, the Supreme Court, vigorous in enforcing a non-delegation doctrine, they could stop. You say they
1: tugged on their forelocks? Is that the same as bangs? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay.
0: Abeasance <laughs> to their to dear leader.
1: I'm, tra- I'm translating for some of the youth. <laughs> for, further, further to what you said just now, George, let me read something you wrote very recently in the Washington Post, which I tend to agree with. Consider today's supine behavior of most congressional Republicans. Echoes what you said, but then goes a little bit beyond. Speaking of Republicans, you say they were for free trade until Trump informed them that they were not. They were defenders of the U.S. intelligence community until Trump announced in Helsinki that he believed Vladimir Putin rather than this community regarding Russian support for his election. They excoriated wishful thinking regarding North Korea until Trump spent a few hours with Kim Jong-un and Smitten tweeted, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. So can you, can you expand a little bit on why you think they're so supine?
0: Fear is the basic answer. They've seen what happened to Senator Corker and Senator Flake, and Congressman Sanford, who got on the wrong side of uh, Mr. Trump and are now outside of politics. A large number of people are in politics to be in politics. That's what they want. That's their objective. And the intellectual and ideological trappings that came with it are to be shed as a snake sheds its skin when they become inconvenient, as a lot of traditional Republican views have. One of the few things that my hero James Madison got wrong was he said in the Federalist Papers that under popular government, all power tends to be sucked into the impetuous vortex of the legislature. Actually, for the last 80 years or so, Congress under both parties has been spinning off powers to the presidents of both parties, reveling in the fact that they are no longer accountable for many of the things that happen in Washington, and it's much more restful to allow most of the actual legislating, that is the details, the trade-offs, and all the granular business of government to be done by the agencies in the executive branch or the administrative state.
1: So when you say non-delegation doctrine, remind people what you mean.
0: There are certain, well, let's do it this way, the first substantive words of the Constitution, that is the first words after the preamble, are all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Congress has no right to shed powers, that is, dis- rulemaking discretion to the executive branch that is essentially legislative power. John Locke in the Second Treatise said, legislatures may make laws, they may not make legislators. And uh, the Supreme Court has in the past, episodically, uh, but not recently, has said there are limits to the discretion Congress can wield in giving essentially legislative powers to presidents.
1: So is it your view that the only, the only conservatives that can sort of be fearless and stick to their principles, whatever they may be, and whatever other progressives on the other side of the ideological spectrum may not like, but the only people who can be free to say what they feel are journalists and columnists like you and David Frum and Max Boot, who have also been on the show, but that there's a large number of Republicans who are elected to office who feel the same way that you do, but out of fear, don't state that, and will revert back to being garden-variety conservatives later, or is that dead for good?
0: Well, I, that's a good question. If Mr. Trump is re-elected, that changes a lot of things. One term is an aberration. Two terms is a trend, a pattern. And I think coming back from eight years of this would be very difficult. I'm not saying that the Republican Party can snap back to what it was. I'm not saying it actually ought to. But I am saying that the vigor with which Republicans have turned their back on 50 years— of uh, rhetorical support for conservative positions is striking. What is open to question is whether the rhetorical support was ever particularly sincere. Let me give you one example. I believe that for all the talk about the discord in American public life, the most shocking and frightening thing is a consensus. It's as broad as the Republic, as deep as the Grand Canyon, and it extends from left to right of the spectrum, and it is simply this, that we should have a large, generous, Entitlement state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that. <laughs> that we should give the we should give the American people a dollar's worth of government and charge them eighty cents for it. The public likes that bargain. The political class loves making big government cheap by shoving part of the cost of it off on the unconsenting, because unborn future taxpayers, and we sail merrily along while everyone talks a great game about uh, fiscal responsibility. Republicans don't mean it.
1: We can also just make Mexico pay for it, no?
0: Well, of course. (laughs) But I mean, when the next recession starts, and if the president has abolished the business cycle, his native modesty would not have prevented him from mentioning that fact. When the next recession starts with deficits already at a trillion dollars a year at full employment and 3% growth, it's going to be really interesting. So let's take Mitch McConnell, for example.
1: Do you think that he has any love, affection, admiration, rapport in a real way with Donald Trump and Donald Trump's politics?
0: No. Uh, I know Mitch McConnell very well, and I think I know how he's thinking. He's thinking that there's nothing he can do about that end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Sixteen blocks away, there's this primal force of nature who's doing what he does. But the Senate, Mr. McConnell says repeatedly, is in the personnel business. That is, it must uh, advise and consent to the nominations to the executive branch and most especially to the Article Three courts. So Mr. McConnell's keeping his head down and doing the personnel business, half of the Senate's business, and doing it quite effectively.
1: Suppose, hypothetically, that Donald Trump gets defeated by a wide margin. It's a definitive loss. And some Democrat becomes the president. What then will be, you think, the posture of people like Mitch McConnell not just with respect to the the new president going forward but with respect to how they will talk about the Trump presidency once Trump is gone and will never hold office again
0: I don't think they'll talk about it I think it'll be a repressed memory I think <laughs> I think they will they will say what that didn't happen did it We'll need hypnotists I, Exactly I think they I think they will come back to something like the conservatism that I outline in my book
1: You know this discussion we're having about the difference between what conservative sort of, you know, philosophers or writers or journalists can say and talk about, same is true on the liberal side, and what is then politically possible for what could be the vessel for that ideology, whether it's conservative or liberal. This may be an impertinent question, but is there a point to conservatism or for that matter, liberalism outside of politics? In other words, is it the purpose of it to cause politics, if that's the point of view you have, to become coextensive with the philosophy?
0: Not really. I I can't speak for progressives today, but I can speak for conservatives who are, in American context, the legatees of classical liberalism, of rights-based, limited government, natural rights, thinking from Locke through Jefferson, Hamilton, and the rest. I think one of the messages, an invaluable message after the political intoxications of the 20th century, is that politics should not be what defines your identity— that government has a great and stately jurisdiction, but it's not everything. And if you're looking for excitement, if you're looking for spiritual fulfillment, if you're looking for the meaning in life, don't look to politics, because we've seen what happens when mass movements become intoxicated by political movements, fighting faiths, fascism, communism, all the rest, that try to envelop the lives of their adherents. It's unhealthy.
1: We should instead allow baseball to govern us. That would be better.
0: <laughs> you should leave lots of social <laughs> space for people to have hobbies like that. Yes.
1: Absolutely. But I guess my question is, maybe this is a silly question, to the extent there is such a thing as conservatism, what does it speak to outside of policy and outside of laws? Yes. There should be areas of life where, like baseball or art or music sure. or literature.
0: Look, the reason I called my book The Conservative Sensibility is a sensibility is more than an attitude but less than an agenda. It's a stance, a way of seeing, a way of experiencing reality and the flux of events. A wise person has said, if you reduce the message of the Bible to one sentence, it is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. (laughs) The conservative sensibility likes that. It likes the fact that in an open society of spontaneous order, to use the phrase from Hayek, who figures prominently in my book, To embrace the openness of the open society, to use the phrase from Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science who wrote the book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, to embrace the fact that the fecundity of freedom is such, and the exhilaration of an open society is so exciting, it's frightening on occasion. An open society of a dynamic economy has casualties, care must be taken for the people who are left behind, but the basic experience... Is thrilling, and it's not the thrill of politics. It's the thrill of a creative life lived in the vast social spaces left by a lightly governed society.
1: It's quite the dilemma, isn't it? I've been thinking about this over the last number of weeks, months, maybe, maybe two years. That there's all sorts of people who think that what's happening in Washington and the policies that Donald Trump is putting forth, and in some cases, more importantly, the rhetoric, causes people to be consumed by it in, in a way that I think people have not been consumed by politics or a president in my lifetime. And that's important. And people say, you know, you must vote. You want people to become engaged. I have three young children who I hope will become engaged. And on the other side is this point you keep making that it can become so consuming that you forget to enjoy these other things.
0: You're quite right that the current president has has achieved a ubiquity that no one has ever seen before. But that, I mean... I don't blame him for trying. All presidents would if they could, I suppose. I blame the media for allowing themselves to be whipped around the way they are. But it's important to understand the long pedigree of this phenomenon that we now have. It began with Theodore Roosevelt and his stewardship idea of the presidency, which was, he said, the president is free to do anything he wants that he is not explicitly forbidden to do. Significantly, Teddy Roosevelt was the first man to become president who was filmed by a movie camera because the modern technologies of mass communication have helped make the modern presidency. Now, you combine this new intimacy with the desire of Congress to shed powers and responsibilities and to give presidents the power to impose taxes in the form of tariffs and all the rest, and you have the short-circuiting of the Madisonian equilibrium.
1: What guidance does... A conservative ideology give one about particular policies and does that change over time so for example if you were a conservative of the type that you write about in your book you know someone who adheres to those principles at the time that Social Security was proposed what would have been the appropriate conservative
0: view I, that's a very interesting question because you know when Ronald Reagan came to town he did not have a complaint against the New Deal legacy it was the Great Society legacy that he took aim at Social security is something conservatives can embrace. That is a social safety net. Today they embrace it, but I guess I... a lot of them did then, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, social security is something government knows how to do. That is, it identifies an eligible cohort, the elderly, and it mails them checks. Fairly simple. What changed was when, in the 1960s, when government said, our scope and our competence are so majestic that we're now going to deliver things like model cities— well, government doesn't know how to build a model city; just doesn't. But it it had this sudden pretense. Now, notice what happened in 1964, when the country made a terrible blunder of rejecting my man Goldwater. Seventy-seven uh, percent of the American people said they trusted the government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the time. Today, the figure is 17 percent. That's a sixty-point collapse. The prestige of government has plummeted as the pretenses of government have risen. Now, it seems to me my progressive friends, all of whose agenda depends upon strong government that can only be strong if the public supports it and respects it, my progressive friends should be alarmed by this. And they should sit down and say, how did this happen that we frittered away 60 points of public approval?
1: Who are your progressive friends? Who are your best progressive friends?
0: Oh, gosh, there's a bunch of writers in town. I don't want to embarrass them by, <laughs> by identifying them as friends. But as you may have noticed in the book, uh, my best friend for many years was Senator Pat Moynihan of New York. Yeah. A resolute New Deal Democrat. Never wavered in that. The finest social scientist ever served in the national legislature. A man of fact and data and reason and good cheer who loved the clubhouse kind of politics he grew up with in New York and loved the game.
1: Are there any people who are in the image of Pat Moynihan today?
0: Well, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, ending his first term, will be up for re-election in 2020. When Ben Sass was elected to the Senate, uh, he's a Yale history PhD, wonderful fellow. The one request he made was he wanted to have Pat Moynihan's desk, and he does have it. Any Democrats? That, that I admire particularly?
1: Well, that are in the mold of Pat Moynihan. Well, I don't think uh, I ever met him. An important senator from New York, where i spent most of my life. And he's a particular kind of Democrat, as you described. Not the kind of person ordinarily goes into elective office. Yeah. But are there people like that now? And, and if not, why not?
0: Well, Ben is the closest, well, partly because yeah. people like uh, Pat are rarities. I once said rather naughtily that while he was in the Senate, Pat had written more books than most of his colleagues had read. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, Pat was just, they don't, they don't come along that often. But uh, Ben Sasse would be, he's actually written two books while he's in the Senate and both of them are repay reading.
1: There's this continuing, we like to say battle because we like, you know, war metaphors between conservatives and progressives slash liberals. But in America, as people often point out, there's not as much of a, Spectrum. The spectrum is not as broad as it is in other countries. There's, there's basically two parties. As some people point out, they're not that different when you compare uh, how politics goes on in, for example, the country of my birth, India. Mm-hmm. The difference between one end of the spectrum and the other is much, much, much wider than it is in America. Now, you know, some people think that's a bad thing. Some people think that's a good thing. But my question is, if you had to do the Venn diagram of you know liberals and conservatives in America, not you know broadly and not throughout history where is the overlap? You, you made a joke earlier about everyone wanting entitlements, not wanting to pay for it, somewhat in jest, but I got the point. But are there some things that you would see in the Venn diagram from which there's fruitful progress to be made?
0: You mean in, in expanding the overlap?
1: For example, there can be differences of opinion with respect to certain policies and the limits of the First Amendment. But, you know, is it, is it fair to say, maybe I'm wrong about this, and we can have a debate about what happens on college campuses. But generally speaking, a mainstream liberal, whatever that means, and a mainstream conservative in America tend to agree on the importance of the free press. Fair? Yes, of course. Are there other things like that?
0: Yes. I think uh, I do not tar uh, mainstream liberals with the behavior of academic progressives who are trying to impose thought control on campuses. I, I acquit them of complicity in that. It's Very kind of you. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's not obvious, but I think it's, it's fair to do. I do think that uh, there are intelligent men and women in both camps who can do arithmetic. And the arithmetic tells us that the entitlement programs we have under current law are unsustainable. Uh, This is because this is a really predictable crisis because it's driven by demography. And demography is destiny for a welfare state because a welfare state exists to transfer wealth to the elderly. We know how many they are. And we know what's happening to the costs of medicine. People understand this. And I think the, I think there will come a time when there'll be a president who says, okay, look, these are all splittable differences. We're talking about money. Uh, we're not talking about uh, the meaning of life. We'll see that uh, we can get back to the business of politics, which is splitting differences.
1: The other issue that I've thought about because of the prior life I had, that to my mind doesn't seem to be a conservative issue or a liberal issue, if you can show it, and that is Bipartisan hatred of corruption. Mm-hmm. Does that remain something that, that that is opposed on a
0: bipartisan basis? Well, the, yes. R- again, rhetorically, everyone's opposed to corruption. The problem is that the modern state, which exists to further the national pastime, which is not baseball, it is rent-seeking, and in fact we have so blurred the line between what is corrupt and what is simple, normal, routine, everyday, garden-variety manipulation of the government— that it's hard to say what is corruption and what is normal practice. You know, it's been well said that uh, if you set out a picnic, you expect to draw ants. And the biggest picnic in the world is a federal budget. There is a reason why five of the ten most affluent counties in the United States by per capita income are in the Washington area. We have no natural resources. We don't manufacture anything except rules, laws, and trouble. But... We get rich because trillions of dollars are sloshing through and being allocated by a government that is far too deeply involved in allocating wealth and opportunity and is far too subject to regulatory and other capture. I believe that, uh, for example, uh, Elizabeth Warren has a firm grip on half of a point. She says, rightly, that the government is far too much the plaything of compact, intense, articulate, confident, well-lawyered factions that know how to work the opaque gears and pulleys and levers of the government. Where I differ from Elizabeth Warren is she says, well, the solutions can make the government really much bigger and much more intrusive and much more energetic in allocating wealth and opportunity. She really believes that somehow government is suddenly going to become disinterested. Do you respect Elizabeth Warren? I do, actually. She brings a, a weight... And dignity to politics. I mean, I, I love the audacity which she has made. I have a plan for that. Her mantra, because she surely knows the old axiom: if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plan.
1: <laughs> you clearly have a bias that we have, I think, established in this program towards people who have written books. Yes. Do we need more of that?
0: We sure do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm well aware of the existence of the new media. Twitters and Facebooks and all that stuff. But I still think that books are primary carriers of ideas, that books matter. I've just written a great thumping one on that belief that... uh, The conservative sensibility, let me say it again. Yay for that. Yes, the greatest publishing event since (laughs) Google. Can I go back to,
1: to Goldwater for a second? Of course. When I first started this program, way back, you know, a year and change ago, I had on when he was still a senator, Jeff Flake. And Jeff Flake had written a book also. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that he borrowed the title from Barry Goldwater.
0: You are correct.
1: He said, like you are saying now, Barry Goldwater was a hero of his and uh, a model for him. The difference between you and him is he was a sitting senator and and you were a uh, a writer of books. And he was thinking about taking a stronger stand and thinking about doing various things. And one of the things he chose not to do was run for re-election. And I didn't understand, frankly... How that squared with his adulation for for Barry Goldwater, given that that Barry Goldwater, as you've described already, ran an uphill race, very uphill, against Lyndon Johnson, and remained, as far as I can tell, uh, although I wasn't alive then, true to his principles and got thumped, forty nine states, and then
0: no forty four states,
1: forty four states. I'm sorry, that was the seventy two. Yep. It's good to have you on the show. <laughs> some people don't correct me when I say dumb things. <laughs> and then some people will say, I think you're one of them, that notwithstanding that loss in that race, conservatism was in a sense launched Quite and right. then had its, yeah. its expression more fully in the political world in Ronald Reagan. And there was, there was something good about that. I'm sorry, this is a long question. I asked this question, A because I wonder how you think about Jeff Flake and that decision not to stand up for principle and run again, even if you're going to go down in a flaming loss. And then second, if there's any lesson there for liberals, progressives, who are debating what kind of person they want in the White House. Do they want someone who is, you know, adhering more purely to some view of liberalism and progressivism in America, or someone who can just win?
0: That's an excellent question. And uh, I know like and respect Jeff Flake. He would have lost in the primary. He wouldn't even have got to the general election. So it would have been a a truncated attempt to unfurl a flag that was not popular anymore in Arizona. Let me go back and do a little history here. Barry Goldwater was a reluctant presidential candidate. It's as close as we've come to a draft in uh, my lifetime because the conservative movement kept prodding him and moving him this way. This was in the 1962 and 1963. In the 1960 convention, he'd gone to the convention and say, wake up conservatives, grow up, we can take back this party. Then, as he was being ambivalent about this, on the 22nd of November 1963, Kennedy is shot. Lyndon Johnson comes in. Barry Goldwater knew instantly that the Republican nomination was not going to be worth very much because the American voters were not going to choose to have three presidents in 14 months which is what they would have done if they would elected Goldwater. So he held back, and finally they said, look, someone needs to revitalize the vocabulary of limited government, unfurl this flag. You'll lose, but you will plant seeds, and you will change the Republican Party. You'll make it a vessel of, of these ideas. And finally he said, well, damn it, all right, I'll do it. He went out and had a blast, actually, because knowing he wasn't going to win, he went to Tennessee and said, let's privatize the TBA," and uh, said some things that uh, some of us found bracing.
1: Is there a Barry Goldwater of the left as we approach 2020?
0: <laughs> well, it could be Elizabeth Warren is. Uh, I, I don't count Bernie Sanders because I, I don't take his socialism seriously. She, Elizabeth Warren is much more of a socialist than Bernie Sanders is. Why don't you uh, take it seriously? Uh, What, his socialism? Bernie Sanders' socialism, yes. Well, because uh, he won't define it in the first place. Look, what is socialism? It used to be government ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Then Lenin, with the new economic policy, said, well, no, actually socialism is government control of the commanding heights of the economy, heavy industry, telecommunications, transportation, etc. Then, after the Second World War, European socialism was watered down further to the point at which it was regulation of the private sector by the public sector plus ambitious redistribution of wealth. I have a news bulletin for you. That's America today. 67% of the federal budget is transfer payments. The sky of America is dark with checks flying back and forth from one faction to another. So the, uh, there's a, He pretends that there's this kind of clarity about what socialism is. He actually thinks Sweden is a socialist country. Sweden has more billionaires per capita than we have, so i, I just I, I don't think he's he's attended to his facts
1: What's been the impact of Fox News realistically on American
0: politics? Well, it speaks directly to the republican nominating electorate, and uh, Trump probably could not have been nominated without Fox News and uh, probably not elected without Fox News. I mean it sits there. At, 440 North Capitol Street, right across from the Capitol. It is a place where uh, Republican members of Congress can walk in 15 minutes from their offices and speak directly to their voters. So it's, it's been a mobilizing force and, and uh, a profound one.
1: So, so that's that's what you're saying. That's what a lot of people say, left and right. And Fox has a lot of critics and obviously has a lot of people who watch it. But as I understand it, if you look at the numbers on any given, even if you're talking about Sean Hannity, which I, I think is or was the highest rated program. yes, It's just a few million people. Exactly. Single digits, millions. And yet tens of millions of people voted for Donald Trump. And so I, I wonder a little bit about this theory that I saw someone challenge of how much an effect Fox can really have if on any given day, a tiny fraction of the people who make up The 39 to 41% of Trump supporters are ever watching it. Do we overstate the impact of Fox News?
0: I think we do, but we should not overstate the importance of the intense minority of Americans who drive the nominating and electoral process, who are actually active in the turning out of votes. There are 327 million people in this country. At any given moment, more than 320 million of them are not listening to talk radio, (laughs) not watching cable television, They're washing the car, cleaning the gutters, and raising children and getting on with their lives. But the the small, intense minorities matter in democracy. Intensity, as much as numbers, matters.
1: I guess that's right. How was your experience at Fox News?
0: I liked the people, a lot of good journalists there. Uh, They came to the conclusion, and they were right, that I didn't belong there anymore. Uh, No hard feelings, and we went our merry way. I may be the only person who's a worked for both Fox and MSNBC, and people sometimes say, gee, what's the difference? I say, well, there isn't one in one sense, in that they both have a base, they, they have a core audience, and they feed it, and they cater to it. Uh, that's a business model that uh, I don't think there's anything wicked about it, uh, but in that sense, they're quite similar.
1: You left the Republican Party.
0: I did on June 3rd, 2016, the day after Paul Ryan endorsed Trump. And I said, well, that's it. Did you struggle with that? No, not a bit. It wasn't a close call. If someone as intelligent and cheerful and decent as Paul Ryan was going to endorse Trump, then Trump was going to be thoroughly normalized, and I didn't want to be part of that. But people always say, gee, what courage it took. It didn't take any courage. It's not like leaving a church. A political party is a utilitarian device, and when it stops being useful, you go elsewhere. That's all.
1: How do you judge Paul Ryan today?
0: I think Paul uh, was probably the biggest casualty of the Trump revolution. Uh, I know that Paul uh, doesn't—well, I'm not going to say what he thinks of Mr. Trump. He can do that on his own, but uh, he's he's not a Trumper. He tried. He had a responsibility. His congressional caucus had made him speaker, very high office, huge responsibilities. He tried to uh, work with uh, Mr. Trump, found it not worth the candle, and left— It was, I think, a civilized, intelligent decision.
1: What is going to happen in 2020? Who's going to win?
0: Well, um, one always says if the future is like the past, X will happen. We've seen recently that the future is sometimes not like the past. Uh, Mr. Trump has never really approached 50% approval. That's a very bad sign for a president. So this should be a very promising year for Democrats. However... I'm just reaching into my wallet. I carry in my wallet a little card. It's going to have to get a bigger card because on it I write all the things that the Democrats, one or another of them, have endorsed in public so the negative ads are already to be made about them. Let's see. Uh, Terrorists and everyone else felons in prison should be allowed to vote. We should end private health insurance. That's a way to start a campaign is to offend 180 million Americans who rather like their private health insurance. Pack the Supreme Court, abolish the Electoral College. Everyone knows that's not going to happen because it takes 13 states to stop a constitutional amendment, and 13 small states will stop that. We're going to have a Green New Deal, which means the end of meat and airplanes. Well, you know, that, but that's but that's not actually true. It does
1: not mean the end of meat and airplanes. That's well, that's yeah. that's responding to a slogan with a slogan a little bit. No,
0: no. Well, what I'd do that is a quote from the Talking Paper put out by. Uh, uh, AOC at a time when six or seven of the current people running for president instantly endorsed it. And then they read it and they said, Well, we're not taking back our endorsement, but that's just aspirational. Well, if it's your aspiration to get rid of meat and airplanes, that's good to know. Uh, moving on to reparations for slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, individually, these are somewhat off putting. Cumulatively, I think normal Americans say, who are these weird people and why are they talking about these things?
1: So you're for Joe Biden.
0: I'm for Biden would be fine. Hickenlooper would be fine. Delaney would be fine. Senator Bennett would be fine. There are a bunch of uh, fine people out there. Amy Klobuchar would be fine. The question is, are they going to have enough sense to to pick these people? Which question reduces to how badly do they want to win or do they want to make a point? they want to send a message or do they want to send a president?
1: Well, this goes a little bit back to the Goldwater question too.
0: Right back to Goldwater. Right.
1: Goldwater, I guess once he decided he couldn't win, as you pointed out, he had the luxury of being able to make a point. Right. And here every Democrat knows that he or she can win. And many people say forces should dictate that they should win. Part of your point is that they don't have the luxury of being able to just make some points. Exactly. Okay, so enough about politics. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking to you about writing. We've had some very important writers on the show now, including yourself. We had Bob Carroll on the, uh, the biographer of both Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson. Everyone has a different way of going about writing. Not only do you write books, but you are a prolific writer of columns. How do you not burn out? Oh,
0: <laughs> when I first started this in 1973, I asked my friend, Bill Buckley, who was a columnist, wrote three columns a week. I said, uh, how do you do this every day? And he said, the world irritates me three times a week. <laughs> uh, the world uh, irritates or piques my curiosity or amuses me or entertains me twice a week. I've written, a, I'm approaching 6,000 columns now, and uh, there has never been a day that I didn't have three or four or five things I wanted to write about.
1: You've never had, on the eve of a column being due, no idea of what you might say. It's always coming.
0: Never. I have in my pocket right now another little card with column topics I want to get to. No, give us a couple. Hang on. Let me grab my...
1: (laughs) Breaking news right here. Let's see.
0: Breaking news. Yes, this is coming to a newspaper near you. Let's see. um, I've been writing about the... I went out to see the Commandant of the Coast Guard, which has got an interesting mission these days. I'm going to write something about Oberlin College's recent $11 million fine for... uh, libel and slander, and the social justice warriors got out of control. Uh, I'm going to write about the concept of social justice, which is uh, much embraced and rarely defined. I'm going to write about the popular vote compact, whereby states would agree to vote for the winner of the popular vote, no matter who won the particular states. I'm going to write a uh, book about the increasing interest in antitrust uh, with regard to big tech companies and others, and what theory of antitrust you have to have to justify that.
1: Those those are all pretty good. You're not going to run dry anytime soon.
0: No, and you notice I didn't mention the 45th president because he's boring. He's become a little boring, hasn't he? That's the one thing an entertainer, which is what he is, dare not be. He has one pedal on the organ. He works it all the time, and it is excruciatingly boring.
1: So I've been reading you since I was a teenager. Back in the '80s, I disagree with a lot of things that you would write, but I always very much admired the writing. And I think the most reasonable people understand that you're a beautiful writer. But you do engage from time to time. The thing's fair to say, in flourishes, and you do use words that, at least when I was younger and had a smaller vocabulary, <laughs> I would have to go to. The, I would have to go to the dictionary. Like I don't know what the hell George Will means by this word. And I think you played some role in expanding my vocabulary and others. So you do use big words. Do you have a a view on that usage? Yeah.
0: When you have 750 words to work with and you're dealing with complex matters, you have to deal in intimation and nuance and you have to have the most efficient word possible. Uh, In a recent call, well, I'll say a couple months ago, I wrote a column about Mike Pence and I referred to him as oleogenous. And I guess I almost crashed the Webster's website. (laughs) (laughs) I said they had 5,000 people instantly... Flew to their computers. What does oleogenous mean? It means oily. But it was the perfect word. But it's
1: not so efficient, George, if people read the word and then they have to go look it up and then maybe they don't finish your column because they got no, no, distracted.
0: They, <laughs> no, my readers are so devoted. They always get to the end. They're all good, robust English words and they ought to be taken out and exercised every once in a while.
1: Do you think writing in this country has gotten worse?
0: probably. Everything else has. <laughs> has everything uh, gotten worse? Not everything. No, baseball's better than ever in some ways. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I do think the social media and communicating in 240 characters is not helpful. There is some worry in the country that intellectuals are not
1: to be trusted. There's a sort of bias against, it seems, expertise. You have, I think it's fair to say, have been an intellectual for a long time. When you were a child, were you made fun of, teased, mocked, bullied in any way because you (laughs) were the smartest kid? No,
0: because A, I wasn't, and B, all I talked about was baseball until I got to college. Uh. I come from an academic family. My father was a professor of philosophy, and I was surrounded by books and big words occasionally, lots of talk, and uh, it was a great way to grow up. But I think I grew up relentlessly, militantly normal.
1: And unscathed. Unscathed. Did you wear a bow tie in high school? Nope. That's another good thing.
0: (laughs) I learned to tie a bow tie because in the 1960s, when everything went mad, men's ties became absurdly wide. So I went out and bought a bow tie. You
1: once said the following about your father that I found really interesting. Quote, there is no moral power like that of a quiet example, and none more vivid to me than my father's. Why is quiet example morally more powerful than another way to model behavior?
0: Because it is quiet, because it says... uh, Just watch what I do, not what I say. It's because it's oblique and indirect, and uh, for that reason, more effective, I think.
1: Do you have a a working definition in your head of what justice means?
0: Uh, Treating likes alike and unalikes unalike. It's not mine, it's Aristotle's. Simple as that. Simple as that. And I do think, and I'm going to get to this in a column, I do think that the adjective social does not modify justice in the phrase social justice. I don't know what it's doing there.
1: You gave the commencement address at Princeton this year. I did. Uh, a, was that fun?
0: It was. It was. It wasn't fun for a few protesters who turned their back to indicate that I'm a bad fellow, but it uh, didn't bother me.
1: The subject of your speech I found interesting, and I liked the sentiment. You talked about... The importance and the power of praise what was your message
0: that uh, in an age of rage of coruscating cynicism and snarkiness all of which is encouraged by the what we call the social media and should be called anti-social media in this age praise is considered a sign of weak critical faculties and people become addicted to anger I think their pleasure synapses light up in their brains the way it would with cocaine But in fact, I said I hope that the class of 2019 leaving Princeton had learned at the university how to praise. Because if you learn how to praise, A, it's pleasure in praising because it means you're savoring and appreciating excellence. And it means that you have acquired standards by which you can measure people and things. And uh, that's a great pleasure to have those standards and to apply them and to take satisfaction from other people's excellence.
1: Is there a particular compliment you've received that has uh, gratified you the most?
0: <laughs> Long ago, when I first started writing for National Review, and um, the magazine was run by Priscilla Buckley, Bill's sister, she said to me, when my copy came in, if my name wasn't on it, she'd have known it was mine anyway. <laughs> because I because I had a style which I thought was rather good, because I've, I've always... Been drawn to writers with distinctive styles. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse, I remember buying a copy of a, a P.G. Woodhouse novel. It was so enchanted, I read 73 more. And this way I'm a columnist now because in 1958, at age 17, I'd gone to college, in Trinity College in Hartford, and I went down to New York, plunked down a nickel and bought a New York Post, and in it I read Murray Kempton, a wonderful columnist. Uh, no one ever did more with 700 words. He had a style that uh, he actually knew where he got it. He said it was from Clarendon's History of the Great Rebellion in England. It was a bit Baroque, but uh, wonderful fun.
1: If I read a column without a name attached to it and it has the word car skating in it, I'll know that it was you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or <laughs> only or- or- <laughs>
1: or- agonist. <laughs> yes. Congratulations on the book. Good luck with the rest of the book tour. It is the conservative sensibility. George Will, thank you for being with us and thank you for all the great reading you provided us over the years.
0: Thank you, and I enjoyed this very much. Take care, sir. Thanks.
1: Every week we have a special bonus for members of the Cafe Insider community. This week's Insider bonus is like delving into a George Will column. I get his opinions on James Madison, baseball, and Ted Cruz, the worst law John McCain ever passed, and what George Will really thinks about Senator Elizabeth Warren. To hear that and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, sign up today at cafe.com slash insider. There are various things that I thought about ending the show with, as I thought about it over the last number of days. But then late last evening, one of the most preeminent jurists in the history of the country, Justice John Paul Stevens, passed away. He was 99 years old, was the third longest-serving justice in the history of the Supreme Court of this country, appointed in 1975 by the short-serving President Gerald Ford. What you may not know is that before becoming a judge, back in 1941... John Paul Stevens volunteered for the Navy precisely one day before December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So he was a proud American, served his country. Here's another historical fact about John Paul Stevens, not quite as serious one. John Paul Stevens was actually at the stadium in Wrigley Field in 1932 at the age of 12 when Babe Ruth, famous Yankee slugger, appeared to call his shot and hit a home run into the center field stands. And a very young future Supreme Court justice, John Paul Stevens, got the thrill of a lifetime seeing that. Unlike some, he evolved in his thinking over time, which I think is a good thing. Whether or not you think the Constitution is a living document or frozen in time, people are allowed to evolve in their views. And the one area in which he seems to have evolved very significantly was with respect to his views on the death penalty. And as he got on in years, he came to believe more and more that the death penalty was not right the death penalty was not just, and actually began to advocate that the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution should be amended with the addition of five new words, so that it would read, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment, such as the death penalty inflicted. One of the most famous dissents that John Paul Stevens ever wrote rings in people's ears to this day, and it was with respect to the 2000 election case, Bush v. Gore, And Stevens wrote at the end of his dissent, quote, Although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. End quote. Unlike some other retired justices, John Paul Stevens remained outspoken about the law and about the court, even as he sat in retirement. He was critical of brett kavanaugh called him unqualified for the supreme court because of his partisan language during a senate hearing and continued to talk about the death penalty but the other thing you think about a person not so often in life but compelled to think about after they pass is not just how big a brain they had uh, how smart they were but how big a heart they had and i did not know john paul stevens personally i think i met him in passing just once but i know a lot of people who did and to a person i'm sure you've heard this on television the various testimonials and newspaper articles he was a lovely man who not only worked hard, but cared about people, cared about his clerks, cared about individuals, and had not just a big brain, but a big heart. And one story captures it well. That was posted in the New York Times. And let me just read from it. Quote, one former law clerk, Christopher L. Eisgruber, described in a 1993 essay, an incident at a party for new clerks. Before Justice Stevens arrived, an older male justice had instructed one of the few female clerks present to serve coffee. When Justice Stevens entered, he quickly grasped the situation, walked up to the young woman, and said, Thank you for taking your turn with the coffee. I think it's my turn now. And he took over the job. Justice John Paul Stevens, may he rest in peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, George Will. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the Cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is my top choice for home security. Hands down, round-the-clock professional monitoring for just $15 a month. There's no contract or hidden fees, and the prices are always fair and honest. What truly makes SimpliSafe stand out? Their video verification technology, which allows them to visually confirm that a break-in is happening so the police get to the scene 3.5 times faster. So visit simplysafecom Preet to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's SimplySafe.com Preet simplysafecom slash preet.